Hi, and welcome to Talking Timber. I'm Chris Bivens, filling in for Diane Mettler. And this week, we'll be talking to John Bailey, a professor of silviculture and fire management at the College of Forestry at Oregon State University. But first, I want to thank our sponsors, the Pacific Logging Congress and the Pacific Forest Foundation, who are dedicated to providing sound technical education about the forest industry. This year, the Pacific Forest Foundation is involved in a variety of educational programs, like its Adopt a High School program, an apprenticeship program with loggers and high school students. You can check out that program and others at www.pacificforestfoundation.org. Also, we want to thank our sponsors, Timber West Magazine and Logging and Sawmilling Journal. You can subscribe now for free just by going to their website, www.forestnet.com. Okay, now let's hear from John. So I grew up in Virginia uh, and my, da- my dad built houses, uh, but he told you know, stories that I think I just, with the heat and humidity uh, there uh, just became delu- uh, disillusioned over time uh, about <laughs> that uh, that level of work and threw my hammer down one day and said, I'm going to go to school and I'm going to study forestry. And it ends up, you know, we had a very good forestry school uh, in the state. Uh, the land grant university there in Virginia is Virginia Tech, the Hokies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a, a really a really good education and not that far from my home and 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 I think I chose forestry if I had to guess why that was happened was just a really good natural resources class that I had in high school and I think that plays the groundwork for you know why I have ultimately become an educator and that that is that experience and and the impression you know I, I don't remember who the teacher was but I, I certainly remember the you know, the impression of the material and, you know, just getting a better understanding. So, you know, grew up on a farm and, and out and had the woods and the creeks and all that kind of stuff, but, you know, failed to realize the potential, you know, to, you know, what was really going on in terms of the forest and natural resources. And the high school class opened that door, prompted me to, to study that in college I did a four-year Bachelor of Science in in forestry with an option in, in wildlife management. And, and so I was enticed to go ahead and stay and get my master's degree. So I ended up being in school for six years. And that really set the tone for my first job coming out, which was to work with a contractor to the Environmental Protection Agency, actually here in, in Corvallis, okay. and working on air pollution in the early climate, global climate change kind of program activities in, in a research support mode. So that kept the research stuff going, ultimately decided that I needed to go back to school for a PhD to, to really do what I thought I was capable of doing. And, and being back on a university campus and being mentored by some really good professors made me realize that I, I wanted to to be a professor. And so I started teaching a whole lot, went straight into a faculty position with Northern Arizona University. And then 15 years ago, I had the opportunity to basically come back here to Oregon State. But scattered in there, you know, in terms of forestry experience was a summer work experience in Oregon with the Forest Service on a civil culture crew. And I was also a firefighter. I fought fire in 
as a as a student crew member while I was at Virginia Tech. So I you know I count my blessings in terms of those experiences, you know, with with different kinds of employers and different work environments, and also three wonderful beautiful parts of the world mm-hmm. uh, to have grown up in Virginia, the foothill of Blue Ridge Mountains and studied at Virginia Tech at the time I've spent in Oregon and the nine to 10 years that I was in Flagstaff, Arizona, which is also just beautiful country and a beautiful forest. So I'm, I'm, I have found out over the years that I'm a Westerner at heart, you know, okay. whether or not it's Oregon or Arizona, I like the wide open spaces sure, sure. Uh, in the politics here and, and that kind of thing. It, it sounds like, you're kind of focused in on wildland fires. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of your your area of expertise at this point, or kind of what you're focused on? Yeah, I think first and foremost, I'm a you know forester and a civil culturist. Uh, so my my focus and subdiscipline is is really around structural development from the perspective of fuels and how we manipulate fuels. And so I I also teach the fire behavior classes and taught fire ecology for a while. And I, I branch over into the fire world and draw on my firefighting experience, uh, you know, some in addition mm-hmm. to the to the civil culture kind of things. Okay. Uh, was, was it the firefighting experience that got you interested in this, or it was something else? Hmm. Well, I, I'm, I was a pyromaniac even well before <laughs> I was, <laughs> well before I was a firefighter. Uh, and you know, growing up in the woods and on a farm, and you know, my dad had me burnt ever since I can remember. Uh, so yeah, that's that's deeply you know, rooted in me somewhere as well. So that's just been part of the path. I kind of gave up on it for a while because my PhD work was in the the West Side Douglas Fir Forest, and and this was in the early nineties. You know, before we were starting to think about climate change and mm-hmm. how things were getting drier, we did not know as much about fire history in Douglas Fir. And so I was very much in the in the perspective that uh, fire wasn't a big role. I would see a certain amount of charcoal out in my plots, but I was really working on it from a, a structural development and a, a broad mix of disturbance mechanisms. Uh, you know, now here 20 some years later, and after the experience in Flagstaff and, and really getting back on the fire uh, band and, and you know, seeing that that being my lens uh, to the research world, uh, we have a much better understanding now of the importance of, of fire in Douglas fir ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, the Douglas fir forest didn't burn, you know, once every two or 300 years. Uh, it burned you know, three to five times per century. But they, they, are, they, you know, they were all skunky, you know, understory burnings. But the fire scars are out there. The charcoal layers are out there. Uh, and anywhere that wasn't burning that frequently is much more heavily Western hemlock rather than Douglas fir. Okay. So, so historically, um, has this been kind of a gradual ramping up to what we're seeing now? Or does it seem, I mean, you know, from somebody who doesn't know anything about it, it seems like you know, holy cow, in the last four years, we were just suddenly inundated with giant wildfires. Um, I mean, is that the case or has it been kind of a slow, uh, slow burn, no pun intended, uh, to kind of get to this point? Right. You know, it, it certainly has been quite dramatic in the last decade, uh, and particularly for folks in like the Portland area, you know, the, the larger municipalities. Um, and, and so like the Eagle Creek fire. And, or the you know the campfire two years ago that burned Paradise, California, you know those kinds of things. But uh, you know, think back to the Biscuit Fire, two thousand and two, the B and B fire up in Santa Ann Pass in two thousand and three. 
Uh, and, and there were some larger fires even, even prior to that, but there certainly has been a ramp up uh, and the, the folks really looking at drought statistics, temperature trends, uh, trends in the length of fire seasons, uh, the number of acres burning, the number of acres burning at high severity, the amount of money that is being put towards suppression. We may have been a little slow, but we really were starting to pay attention to that even 15 years ago. It just it wasn't getting much traction with the general public. Uh, those upward trajectories have all continued, though, and there's we've, we've been hammered enough, and including this year and, and you know, why we're doing this interview, is it's just becoming undeniable. Uh, as, as we say, that we, we are on a actually a steep pitch, steeper than I would have said five years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, you, do you think there's one mitigating factor that makes it worse than the others, or do you think it's, it's a pretty equal combination of things? I, I really don't try to, to tease it out. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, certainly the high wind, you know, oh. part of it, you know, from just a fire behavior, fire intensity sure. perspective, last week, the wind is what was doing it. Mm-hmm. It just seems to be a little shift in the probabilities of wind because fuels are drier and, and temperatures are higher. Mm-hmm. Uh, the probabilities that they match those conditions seem to be increasing. And that's certainly what happened last week. So we had a, we had a, a, a landscape really in fuel, that fuel was extremely dry. Uh, then it got warm and dry air, low single-digit relative humidity. And just with the probability, we also got the wind event and an ignition with it. And you know, that is that is the recipe to uh, burn a hundred thousand acres in sure, a 24-hour sure. period. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it doesn't seem like the wind is one of those things that's that's happening all the time. It seems like that was kind of an anomaly. Exactly. We get them each year. We just they just don't match up, the, you know, the way they did last week. I, I'm gonna imagine the thing that we actually have a little more control over is is the fuels management. Exactly. So when we talk about fire behavior, this would be a great message uh, to to get out. Uh, the fire behavior triangle is topography. Of course, that's not gonna that hasn't changed that much, nor is it gonna change in the future. Uh, but it interacts with fuels and weather, of course. Um, but there's topography, there's weather, and there's fuel. Uh, weather, you just need to kind of understand it and be able to forecast it. Uh, mm-hmm. You can't really manipulate it, though. Uh, and so fuel, fuels is the one we can manipulate, and we can manipulate it with an eye to the probabilities of the weather. What's involved in manipulating the fuel management? If we go back to the root of fire behavior, most of it is rooted in fine surface fuels, the, the really mm-hmm. small, small material that uh, you know, reacts quickly to the weather, but also reacts quickly in the fire environment. It dries, is heated to combustible temperature, and explodes and ignites the next piece really quickly. You know, that's mm-hmm. fine, you know, flashy fuels, one, you know, one hour fuels, we call them. You know, those, those can be manipulated in the course of all land management activities that we do. And, and, and there are things we can do mechanically. There are things we can do chemically. Uh, and then, of course, there, there's fire itself and you know, prescribed burning and, or wildfire that treats that fine surface component or a, a lesser important, but one we often address are the latter fuels, things that le- link surface fire behavior up to the you know crown crown fire. So uh, if we can get the amount of surface fuel, particularly fine surface fuel, down and treat those latter fuels a little bit, then that means the understory can burn, 
uh, and burn at a, a lower intensity such that it doesn't necessarily girdle the trees unless they're really young and small. Sure. Uh, but it can, it can do its thing around on the surface and, and spread and, and recycle nutrients and do all that ecological stuff uh, and treat the fuels without transitioning to the crown, um, you know, um, combusting those crowns, sending embers a half a mile, you know, down, downwind, down the road, mm-hmm. you know, those kinds of things that you see in these large stand replacing events. Hi, we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors, the Pacific Forest Foundation and the Pacific Logging Congress, as well as Timberwest Magazine and the Canadian Logging and Sawmilling Journal. Due to the coronavirus, the 2020 PLC Congress has been moved to 2021. But that doesn't mean they won't be active and involved this year, promoting sound, technical forest education. Their annual auction will be virtual this year and held December 16th. To find out more, just visit www.pacificloggingcongress.org. Okay, now let's get back to John. Uh, so this is probably a loaded question, but what is the hangup um, with managing the surface fuels at this point? Mm-hmm. Uh, mechanically is just the you know expense and the equipment and the the people and the the drive the the mm-hmm. plan uh, in order to to manage those. Uh, you know, of course, on federal lands, uh, the commercial side of it has been you know, challenged uh, a lot, uh, you know, by the environmental community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the, 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 the commercial part of that biomass removal and the activities in the woods and all the things that it funded in terms of road maintenance and access and mm-hmm. having people out and working in the woods and, and all those kinds of things, uh, that has dropped off substantially, you know, like, you know, more than 90% of it on federal lands, mm-hmm. uh, lesser extent on state lands. And so it's, it's tended to, to take, you know, to tail off. There's just left, less of it being done. Um, we, you know, we use chemicals a lot more, you know, particularly on industry lands for site preparation and mm-hmm. uh, to get better seedling survival, but it, it doesn't really dispose of the fine surface fuels, uh, you know, very well. So that, so that means, you know, that stored energy, that biomass, is largely being left on site mm-hmm. and then we we hit a dry summer and it catches on fire and, and burns burns the plantation uh so is is there basically not a lot of intrinsic value in in the surface material other than it used for biomass yeah you know from uh if it's activity fuel if it if it's harvesting residue uh and and things that are already being handled mm-hmm. uh there there may be some value for that kind of biomass bioenergy kind mm-hmm. of market the economics on that currently don't don't pin out very well i've been involved in a few research projects along those lines um, so it, it's going to need to be subsidized and or okay. fossil fuel is going to have to become more expensive to for it to start okay. being able to just pay its way out of the wood do you see any any impetus, anything moving forward where, you know, maybe we're looking at uh, some different models for making that surface material more valuable so people want to get in, go in there and get it out. Yeah, e- exactly. And, and so, you know, I think that capitalist spirit will help with parts of it uh, in terms of <clears throat> which 
which segments, uh, you know, which landowner and landowner classes uh, are going to be motivated for, you know, this or that activity just, just to protect their investment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the, it'll touch that entrepreneurial spirit for utilizing these materials in one way or another. And, uh, but also in terms of making prescribed burning cheaper, you know, with mm-hmm. supply and, and demand. So, you know, prescribed burning will, will get cheaper when there are more trained crews out there, you know, available to burn. And parts, parts of that solution will be absolutely consistent with, you know, a, a capitalist entrepreneurial you know, kind of system. Uh, parts of it are probably going to be some kind of CCC program, maybe mm-hmm. that the, the feds, you know, get into sure. or, or, or something like that. Some of it might be grant driven by the mm-hmm. Elon Musk of the world that, you know, want to, to save the forest or something mm-hmm. like that. You know, we'll see how that will unfold. Um, and it sounds to me, and I might be wrong here, like there, there's a little bit of a swing on the environmentalist side uh, towards better management because they're starting to see the effects of, of the wildfire. You, you know, you're not mm-hmm. exactly saving the forest if it burns down. Right, right. And that's that's a big lesson um, that, you know, that kind of thing is the, uh, just like with pickles, the preservation model has its limits. Uh, mm-hmm. and so the preservation model for old growth and saving large tracts of old growth, Opal Creek is going to be another example. Um you know, it's still, you know, old growth is not a piece of land. Mm-hmm. Uh, old growth is a structural condition that uh, appears and disappears in time and space. Mm-hmm. And, and so you can't just, you, you, you can preserve a piece of land for a little while and it, it may survive decades. It, it may only survive days, uh, you know, in these kinds of disturbance regimes. Uh, but, but by and large, the preservation model ult- ultimately fails. And so the conservation model is going to be better. So that's going to include in our old growth areas, uh, to a certain extent, maybe even in our wilderness areas, um, and, but there with non-mechanical tools uh, that, that we're going to actually need to actively manage for conservation. And you're right, you know, I think many, many parts of the environmental community are coming around to that failure in the preservation model. And you know, they're, they're ready for us, even on federal lands, um, you know, to get out there and do more. But of course, then we have to be able to. We have to have the, the mills, the truck drivers, sure. the workforce, the budget, uh, all of those kinds of things. So there's going to be some inertia in order to get that system you know, that whole system back up and going for the, for the good of the, the broader society, we're going to have to rekindle a little trust and, and uh, work on some of these things cooperatively and across landowners, federal, state, private, small, private industry. We're going to have to come together, you know, like we do during these big fire events, you know, we come together Mm -hmm. at two o'clock in the morning with no sleep uh, and everybody's on the same page and working together. And that's a wonderful thing. And you're saying there's there's fewer and fewer prescribed fires. Why is that? I mean, is it just more of a hassle in terms of what you need to do to, to do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, it does, it does take a workforce and a, and a commitment and, and cost money. And so, you know, some agencies and organizations are better uh, or, or, or they have, depending on what part of the world uh, you're in, you know, you, 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 you ebb and flow that workforce and, tr- and training and everything ebbs and flows depending on how much you're a- 
allowed to do, for lack of a better word. So the southeastern United States uh, still does a lot of prescribed burning, way more acres than we do in the West. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's it's just it's more a part of the culture down there. We've just gotten away from that in the West, uh, and, and it, it just it has to be has to be rebuilt here. Because our ancestors, our ancestors were doing it 404,000 years ago. They were burning millions of acres every year. Sure, sure. Um, is, is, it, is that in the end more efficient? Uh, that having a, a low fuel landscape and having that kind of cultural appreciation of burning, yes, makes, makes, it, a, makes it a lot easier, whether it's the, the current or older you know, cultures of the Southeast uh, mm -hmm. or the older culture of the, of the Western U.S. that, you know, they are uh, our, our best reassembly, you know, of what was going on in terms of fire history, fire ecology 404,000 years ago when we look at fire scars and charcoal layers and lakes and we, we just see how common fire was and much more common than can be explained by lightning ignitions and, mm -hmm. and those kinds of things. And talking with the tribes and that kind of traditional ecological knowledge that, that we hear from the tribes, the uh, you know they they actively managed, purposefully managed mm -hmm. the landscape over thousands and millions of acres. You know, what do you see as the way forward through all of this? And so it's it's going to be, uh, I think, step one is getting past the denial and just recognizing uh, that this is a, a, a real issue and we can't blame it on climate only. We can't blame it on fuels only. We can't blame it on human settlement only. We can't blame it on the timber industry only. We can't blame it on the feds only and all that kind of stuff. You know, this, this, is, this is a real problem. It's a real trajectory we're on. We've got to admit that this is the new reality, and we've just got to forge a new relationship with fire and smoke. And it's going to take it's going to take us all together to do it. We want to thank our sponsors: Pacific Forest Foundation, the Pacific Logging Congress, and Timberwest Magazine and Logging and Sawmilling Journal for making this podcast possible. But most of all, we want to thank John for taking the time to talk with us. Until next time, take care.